0: So, before I have to uh, answer several emails from you all, you probably noticed two different spellings of Emmanuel on the uh, screen. I always say it's spelled with an I is the right way to spell it, but really spelled with an I is the Hebrew way to spell it. In Hebrew, in the Old Testament, it is an I. In the New Testament, it is really an E sound, although several of the newer translations often still spell it with an I because of the Old Testament spelling. So there's your little bit of trivia, the uh, answer to the question that was, I'm sure, burning in many of your minds and saving me time this week from answering it. Way back in the dark ages, when Peggy and I were having children, we didn't know what we were having. I mean, you would go to the hospital with a boy's name and a girl's name. And then you would wait. And when the baby came, the doctor would say, It's a boy, girl, whatever. And I thought about that this week because the question I want us to address in our Advent series is Who is this baby? A lot of people at Christmas time will talk about Jesus. They'll talk about Christmas, but the real question is, do we know who Jesus is? Who is this baby? And so over these next few weeks, we're going to address that question, and what better place to begin than with one of the foundational Old Testament passages that deals with who He is. So if you have your Bibles or your electronic devices, I invite you to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 7. And in Isaiah chapter 7, we read about who he is. This passage is quoted in Matthew 1, it is so foundational, and we'll kind of be jumping between those a little bit this morning. But the climax of the chapter, though it's not the end of the chapter, is certainly verse 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign, behold the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. And we're going to read that verse several times. You're going to see it on the screen several times. So Isaiah tells us who this baby is. He is God with us. And Isaiah in this passage helps us understand what that means. I mean, it's nice to say, Emmanuel, God with us. But what does that mean if you're going through a struggle in your life if you're going through pain if you're going through a situation that you don't understand what in the world does God with us have to do with everyday life what does a passage written thousands of years ago have today with to do with everyday life well Isaiah is going to build three descriptions of God with us in this passage that lead us up to this verse up to chapter 7 verse 14 and they help us understand what it means for God to be with us. So let's see how we get to verse 14, shall we? We start with verses 1 and 2. There's a shock, right? In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah. And let's just stop for a minute and say, please don't get lost in all those strange names. Spellcheck did not like these names, let me just tell you that. But he's talking about the setting, the historical setting of Isaiah 7.14. The historical setting has to do with the nation of Judah, where a king named Ahaz rules. The northern kingdom, often called Israel, sometimes called in this passage Ephraim. And then the also north of Judah, the nation of Syria. And so those are the the guys, the people that are involved in this story. So they come up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but they could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, with the northern kingdom, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as trees of the forest shake before the wind. Those verses are meant really to give us context for verse 14, And the context is that the nation of Judah is in a world of trouble. They are in a mess. They are under pressure. And maybe you are this morning as you come here or as you watch us online. You are under pressure, stress. You're in a mess. Sometimes those messes are because of things we do. Sometimes they're because of things that other people do to us. But the reality is that we often do make a mess of things. Our lives get very tangled up. And for the nation of Judah, that was certainly the case. They are ruled by the na- a man by the name of Ahaz, which may not mean a lot to many of you, but Ahaz was a wicked king. If you want the backstory, you can read Second Kings 16 or Second Chronicles 28, and you'll get the backstory of all that we're looking at this morning. And in 2 Kings 16, we are told that Ahaz the king worshipped false gods, not Jehovah, the God of Judah. That he even went so far as to offer one of his sons as a sacrifice, a burnt offering to one of the pagan gods. That's the context in which we get 7.14. And we're also told in these verses that Judah is under political pressure. That two nations, the nation of Ephraim, or the northern kingdom, and the nation of Syria, are attacking Judah. It's not the first time. They've attacked at least two other times before this. And it's interesting because those two nations, the northern kingdom, Israel and Syria, usually were at odds with each other. But they have now formed an alliance, and these two nations, which were much stronger than Judah, are together coming against Judah. The reason for that is what's going on in the world of that day. Assyria, not Syria, the nation of Assyria is on the rise. They are going to be the world power of the day. And so these other two nations have said, we need to form an alliance against this new rising power. And we want Judah to join us. And Judah said, "Eh, nope, not doing it. And so the northern kingdom and the Syrians decided, we will attack and we will force them to ally with us. And Judah is terrified of what's going on in the world. Isaiah gives us a word picture that they're shaking like the trees of the forest shake before the wind. Remember the windstorm a couple weeks ago? Remember being in my living room watching some of my neighbor's pine trees going like this and wondering if any of them were coming down in my yard in this storm. They were shaking in the wind and that's the people of Judah and their king. They are terrified by what is happening in the world. So that's the context of Isaiah 7.14. You have bad leaders and a world crisis. Sound familiar? It's the story of humanity. And it's in that story that we get God with us. Matthew records it this way. She, Mary, will bear a son And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And then he quotes the prophecy from Isaiah. See, we have a problem. It's not just bad leaders, and it's not just crises in our world. It's sin. It's a bigger problem. Israel was under the thumb, or Judah was under the thumb of these two nations when Matthew writes this passage. They're under the thumb of Rome. But our problems are much bigger than the northern kingdom, or Syria, or Assyria, or Rome, our problem at the depth is sin. That every one of us are trapped in our sins. We have all sinned, Paul says, and we've fallen short of God's glory. And the wages of that sin is death, eternal separation from God forever. But Jesus came into our mess. And he came to deliver us from our sin. See, it's almost like we're in a bad nightmare. And you're being held hostage by a gunman. And suddenly that gunman turns and you look and it's you. You're being held hostage by you. And that's where we really are. It's our sin, our rebellion against God that holds us hostage. And the deliverer came. Jesus came and he died on a cross to pay for our sins and he rose again showing that his payment had been accepted so that you and I could be freed from our sin and so Isaiah 7 14 at its very root is talking about your need and my need of deliverance from our sin and it's reminding us that Jesus is the God who comes into the mess we've made A lot of times when we think of Christmas, we have these idyllic kind of scenes of families and, you know, probably epitomized by Hallmark movies and other movies like that, that, you know, everything ends up great at the end and it's snowing and it's just beautiful. That's not what Christmas is really about. Christmas is really about God coming into the mess that we've made in our world, coming to rescue us from the mess that we've made of our world. And you may be sitting there thinking or you may be watching online and thinking well my life isn't a mess and that may be true in the physical sense but if you've never trusted Jesus Christ as Savior then you are trapped in your sin spiritually you are a mess and the only rescue the only rescue is through faith in Jesus Christ. That's the good news of Christmas, that Jesus came into the mess to rescue you and me, and all we have to do is accept the gift of salvation that He offers to us because of what He did for us. And I know many of you have done that. For us, the message of Christmas is a reminder that whatever the mess is that you're dealing with, and maybe right now it isn't so bad, but it might be coming this week. You don't know, I don't know. It's a family situation, a work situation, a health situation, a financial situation. Whatever it may be, if your life feels like a tangled mess, remember that Jesus is the God who comes into those messes, even when we're the ones who've made them. Which leads us to a second description that Isaiah gives that helps us understand who is this baby. He is the God who's coming assures us that God is still in control so not only does he come into the mess but we're reminded by the story that he's in control of the mess and he's capable of untangling the mess for us his sovereign plan is being accomplished and the call for us as we're going to see moving through Isaiah's passage is to trust to trust that God really is sovereign over our mess That he really is capable of untangling it and bringing good out of our mess. And so God sends Isaiah to the king. Isaiah and his son. And the king is out and he is examining a water source. Because if you're expecting a siege, guess what? Water sources in your city become pretty important during the siege. So we pick up the story in verse 3. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway of the washer's field. And say to him, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint. All of those words, those phrases, really mean the same thing. Be calm. And can't you hear Ahaz? wouldn't you respond sure that's easy for you to say isaiah you're not the leader in charge of a nation with two bigger nations trying to swallow it up but isaiah tells him do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin and syria and the son of remaliah have you ever taken a stick and poked it into the fire and pulled it out of the coals then, and and the the end of that stick is glowing. But it doesn't stay glowing and hot very long, does it? And that's what God is saying about these two nations that are coming against Judah. They may be hot, they may be fearful, they may be fiery right now, but it's not going to last. They're just smoking stumps of firebrands. They're going to go out. And their evil plans will not come to fruition. Because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah, has devised evil against you saying, let's go up against Judah and terrify it. Well, that worked. They're shaking like trees in the wind. And let us conquer it for ourselves. Well, they've conquered some of it. And set up the son of Tabeel as the king in the midst of it. See, they want to put a puppet king on the throne so they can control what the nation does. And that's not going to work as we'll see. Thus says the Lord God, Jehovah God, it shall not stand and it shall not come to pass. Their evil plans will not happen. In fact, it's really interesting to me that the king of Israel is identified early on as Pekah, the son of Remaliah. But in verse 4, in verse 5, and then later on in the passage, all God refers to him as Is the son of Remaliah? We don't know anything about Remaliah. He was not a king, and and Pekah is. It's almost like God is saying, you know, this guy is so insignificant. I'm not even going to mention his name. He's just the son of an insignificant man, Remaliah. In all, in essence, he's saying, you know, that guy isn't going to be a big problem. In 65 years, Pekah and the Northern Kingdom are going to be shattered. God says that in verse 8. For the head of Syria is Damascus. The capital city of Syria is Damascus. The head of Damascus, the king, is Rezin. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim, the head of the northern kingdom, is Samaria. That's the capital. And the head of Samaria is that guy, the son of Remaliah, that guy. Don't worry about him. He's just a smoking firebread. He's going to go out. And it's really interesting because within 12 years of this prophecy, the nation of Israel is conquered by the Assyrians, utterly, completely conquered. say, well, where's the 65 years? Well, if you move out 65 years from this prophecy, that's when the Assyrians actually come in and they deport most of the people out of the northern kingdom and bring new people in to live there. And the northern kingdom goes out of existence, never to exist again. They're shattered, just as God promised would happen. See, God's sovereign. He's sovereign over the messes of your life and my life and Judah's life. And the call for us is to trust that he's sovereign over our mess, which is exactly what Isaiah says to the people of Judah and Ahaz. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. You need to trust God in this. If you don't stand in faith, you will not stand. In fact, there, there's a word play that goes on in this verse that's hard to capture in English. I, I came up with something like this. If you are unsure, you won't endure. Because that's what the phrase is saying. You're going to keep shaking. You will not survive if you don't trust God and his promises and his plan. See, we need to trust that God is working out his plan. And when we go over to Matthew chapter 1, we're reminded that that's exactly what happens. As he, Joseph, considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph... Son of David, hold on to that phrase for just a moment. Do not fear to take Mary as your wife for that which is conceived in is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill. Hold on to that for a moment. What the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Matthew brings us down to the birth of Jesus, and he says this is the fulfillment of God's promises. He will be the son of David. Joseph, his earthly guardian, is a son of David. He's in the line of David. If you read Luke's account of the gospel, Mary, Jesus' mother, is also in the line of David. See, when when Ahaz is being threatened back in Isaiah 7 it looks like the, the line of David's going to be extinguished and maybe this son of Tabeel will end up on the throne and God says no nope, not going to happen there will be a son of David who will rule on the throne forever his name is Jesus and this happened to fulfill God's promises Matthew loves that word fulfill. And he says, Jesus' birth fulfills Isaiah seven fourteen. And if you move on through Matthew chapter 2, he's going to talk about other fulfillments. But it's just a reminder that Jesus came to fulfill the promise made all the way back in Genesis 3 of a deliverer who would come to undo the mess Adam and Eve made of the world. That he came to fulfill the promises that God made to David about a son who would reign forever. That he came to fulfill Isaiah seven fourteen and every one of God's promises that he makes to us. So who is this baby? He is the God whose coming assures us that God is still in control. That God keeps his promises. Now, this holiday season, you may feel like your life is out of control. It's not. Now it may be out of your control, it may be out of my control, but it's not out of His control. A cowboy decided that uh, he wanted to buy some life insurance, and so he contacted an insurance agent, and the agent came out to his ranch, and they sat down and began, you know, the long questionnaire that you got to do when you're doing that. And the, they came to the question. The agent said, have you ever had any accidents? And the cowboy thought a minute and he said, nope. And the agent said, really? On a ranch this size, you, you've never gotten hurt? The cowboy said, well, you know, there was that time a couple of years ago when a bronc threw me off. And, and then last year, a cow kicked me and broke some ribs. And earlier this summer, a rattlesnake bit me in the ankle. The agent said, don't you call those accidents? I said, nope, those critters meant to do it. <laughs> not an accident, it was on purpose. And that's what our lives are. They're not accidents. We don't always understand, and, and we make choices sometimes that bring the messes, and we're responsible for those choices. But God is sovereign over them, and He's in control of them. John Piper says it so well when he says, life is not a straight line leading from one blessing to the next and finally to heaven. Life is a winding and troubled road. God is not just showing up after the trouble and cleaning it up. He is plotting the course and managing the troubles with far-reaching purposes for our good and for the glory of Jesus Christ. See, God is managing the troubles of our lives for His glory and ultimately for our good. We can trust Him with our lives. We can trust Him with our mess. If you've never trusted Him as Savior, you can trust Him with your sin and with your eternal destiny. And you can place your faith in Him and He will never let you down. And for those of us who have Whatever this week, whatever this month, whatever the new year, if Jesus doesn't return, holds, we can trust Him. Because He is the God whose coming assures us that He is still in control. Which brings us to one final description that Isaiah gives us. He is the God who comes to be with us in the mess. See, He doesn't just come to us He comes to be with us in the mess. Our world and our lives may be a mess, but God doesn't abandon us. That's the message of Jesus. That's the message of Christmas. He is with us. And when we are faithless, because we are sometimes, we don't always believe, God is still faithful. Ahaz was faithless. We're going to see that in just a minute. But even as he is faithless, God is faithful And so Isaiah comes to Ahaz and he speaks for God and he says, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol, the place of the dead, or as high as heaven. You know what God has just done? He's just said, Ahaz, here is a blank check for a sign that I will keep my word, that I will do what I have promised in rescuing Israel from these two nations. What do you want? What sign would you like to see? I mean, what an amazing offer. But Ahaz refuses. Ahaz doesn't trust. He tries to sound pious in doing it, but Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Look at me. Now, Deuteronomy 6.16 did say, don't test the Lord your God, but that's not what's happening here. God has offered him a sign. And you have to wonder, doesn't Ahaz know about the crossing of the Red Sea on dry ground? The crossing of the Jordan River on dry ground? Doesn't he know about the fall of the walls of Jericho? Doesn't he know how Gideon and his 300 men defeated that huge army of the Midianites? Doesn't he know about David and Goliath? Doesn't he know God with us? And the answer is, well, maybe he knows it up here, but it hasn't affected here. And he doesn't trust God. You know why he doesn't trust God? Because he's already got his plan in place. He's trusting Ahaz's plan for his rescue, for his salvation. Again, if you were to look at the backstory in 2 Kings 16 or 2 Chronicles 28, you'd find that Ahaz has already sent a large sum of gold and silver and money to the king of Assyria and said, come and rescue us from these two kings who are attacking us. Someone has said that Ahaz calling for Assyria to rescue him from the northern kingdom and the kingdom of Syria is like a mouse that's being attacked by two rats calling for a cat to help him. It's not going to turn out well. And God tells Ahaz, this is not going to turn out well for you. Verse 17, the Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria is coming, and it's not a good thing. 2 Chronicles 28 tells us, so Tiglath-Pileser, the king of Assyria, came against him, Ahaz, and afflicted him instead of strengthening him. See, it seems at first like it works because the king of Assyria comes and he attacks the northern kingdom and he attacks Syria and they do withdraw. And it works until it doesn't, until the king of Assyria directs his attention south to Judah. And Judah becomes an Assyrian puppet kingdom because Ahaz didn't trust God. But in the midst of God's Ahaz's unfaithfulness, God is faithful. Isaiah says to Ahaz, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? If you were to move back a couple verses before this, God had said, Isaiah had said to Ahaz, The Lord your God is offering you a sign. See the subtle shift? It's no longer the Lord your God. It is my God. Ahaz has been rejected by God. He's been rejected. He is going to suffer and the people will suffer the consequences of his lack of faith, his lack of trust in God. But even then, God is faithful because now we get to verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. If you won't ask for one, God says, I will give you one. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name God with us. Behold, he says, sit up and take notice. The virgin is going to have Emmanuel. Now some of you may run across a person, as I did, who's going to say with, well, you know, the the word virgin there in Isaiah, the, the Hebrew word there doesn't mean virgin. I actually had a conversation like that with a Jewish man one day whose son was a rabbi, and so he he knew all of this. and, And he said, that Hebrew word, Alma, means a marriageable young woman. And he's right. It does mean that at its essence. But if you trace that through the Old Testament, in almost every case, you can demonstrably show that the person talked about is a virgin. There's a couple cases where it's not absolutely clear. But the point is, in Israel, a young woman of marriageable age was assumed to be a virgin. But what settles it for us is not just what Isaiah says, or what Matthew says about Isaiah, but the Jewish scholars who translated the Old Testament into Greek before the birth of Jesus, otherwise it might have been different. When they were translating the Septuagint, translating into Greek, you know what word they chose to use here? a very clear Greek word that meant virgin. And Matthew picks it up, and of course for us, he settles it under the inspiration of the Spirit. He says she was a virgin. He's talking about Mary. Don't get lost in all the argument and miss the fact that Jesus is God with us in the fulfillment of the promise. Because if the prophecy simply meant, as my Jewish friend was trying to argue, that a woman in Isaiah's time was going to have a baby and that was going to be a sign. The thing is, what sign? I mean, God offered a sign down here in hell or up here in heaven, as big as you want, and the biggest God can come up with when Ahaz doesn't ask for one is that somebody's going to have a baby? No. This passage, the ultimate fulfillment of it is that the virgin will conceive and she will bear a son while she's still a virgin, and his name will be God with us. And so Matthew tells us the fulfillment is Jesus, who came in the, as the answer to exactly what the people of his day and what you and I need. See, Jesus came because God's faithful. Jesus came because God was fulfilling His plan to send a Savior who will save His people from their sins. And so the answer to the the difficulty of Judah, which is we need a king who's in the line of David and it seems to be threatened by these two northern enemies. The answer to Israel in the time when Matthew writes it, when there is no king anymore and Rome rules, is that there's going to be a king. God's going to keep his promise, and Jesus comes in fulfillment of the promise because God's faithful. But not just to rule over the house of David. He comes to fulfill the promise of a deliverer from sin for you and for me. And he has to come, born of a virgin, because he's born of a virgin so that he has a human mother. He's fully human, but he has no human father because he's also fully God. And he has to be both of those. Because he has to be fully human so that he can take my place and your place and he can die on the cross to pay for our sins. But he has to be fully God because if he's only a human, a really good, perfect, sinless human, he could die in my place, but the rest of you are out of luck. But because he's God, he can die in the place of all those who will believe the promises of God and come to him by faith. He is God and man. We're going to talk a little more about that, the Lord willing, next Sunday from John chapter 1. He is the fulfillment of God's promises. So, He is the God who comes to be with us in the mess. He gave up heaven for us. And in the middle of some of the messes of life, you and I can feel very alone, but the reality is we're not. If you're a child of God or you're a follower of Jesus, you're not. You're never alone because He's God with us. And God never abandons His people. And if He kept this promise, He will keep all of His promises. A pastor went to visit an elderly man in his congregation who was dying one day. And the man said, Pastor, as I approach death, I've lived all my life clinging to the promises of God, but now I can't remember a one of them. And the pastor knew it was a combination of the wrestling with death and maybe the medication, but maybe a spiritual struggle going on. And he looked at him and he said, brother, do you think God has forgotten any of the promises? And he said, no, no, he's faithful. He hasn't forgotten And that's what you and I cling to. You and I may be faithless, but God is still and always faithful to us. He's God with us just as He promised. Who is this baby? He's the God who comes into the mess we've made assuring us that He's still in control and coming to be with us in the circumstances of life. So now you know a little more about who He is, but the real question is, do you know Him? Have you ever personally trusted in Christ as your Savior, your rescuer from your sins? If not, before you leave here today, please talk to somebody about that. And they will be thrilled to share with you about the Savior that you can know personally. I've always liked this, it appears on Christmas cards, it's appeared in books, it's, it's variously attributed to different people, but it's so powerful. If our greatest need had been information, God would have sent us an educator. If our greatest need had been technology, God would have sent us a scientist. If our greatest need had been money, God would have sent us an economist. If our greatest need had been pleasure, God would have sent us an entertainer. But our greatest need was and is forgiveness. So God sent us a Savior, Emmanuel. God with us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gift of your Son, God in the flesh, to be with us and to rescue us. With our heads bowed and eyes closed, I just want to ask two questions. The first question I ask you is, do you know God with us? Do you know Jesus? Have you placed your trust in Him? Whether you're seated here in the worship center or watching online, that's a really important question. Do you know Jesus as your Savior? And if the answer is no, then right where you're seated, you can change that. You Simply pray and tell him that you know you're a sinner. Tell him that you believe that he died on the cross to pay for your sins. Ask him to put that payment on your account to forgive your sins and to come into your life and to make you his child. You just put those in your own words and pray that and he'll do it because he keeps his promises. And if you do that, I would love to talk to you. If you're watching us, give our office a call. For many of us who've made that decision, I have a question for us as well. Will we trust him? Will we stand by faith? Because if we don't stand by faith, we will not stand at all. He's God with us, he's worthy of our trust. Thank you. Thank you, God that you are worthy of our trust and you demonstrate that over and over again, but the greatest demonstration is the cross and the empty tomb. And we rejoice in that and ask that you would help us to be ambassadors of the message of salvation even in this Christmas season. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.